Hello and welcome to the first episode of Pharmacists After Hours, a new C&D podcast series which explores what interesting and quirky things pharmacists get up to in their spare time. Throughout the series I'll be speaking to pharmacists across the country about their unique hobbies and pastimes to find out more about those activities and how they fit with the world of pharmacy. This week I'm joined by Jennifer Smith, a pharmacist from Birmingham and a keen microlighter. So to start us off Jen, for those who don't know, what is microlighting? Most people think of it as, uh, you know, those little aircraft that looks like the unholy marriage between a hang glider and a pushchair. They're actually a lot safer than they look, but that's your traditional microlight. But there are also ones that just look like tiny little aeroplanes. So we're essentially the ultralight end of aviation, maximum two seats. Well, we can hear just what it's like for Jen to take off in her microlight right now. Helmets. On. On. Clear prop. Obviously, you've shown me what your microlight looks like, and I, I, I got the feeling it was quite precarious. Is it at all easy to operate? I mean, a lot of it seems to be hand movement, stuff like that. Can you kind of walk me through how it is the get started going with it yeah i mean on the ground it steers like a go-kart you've basically got two pedals left pedal is for the brakes and you push it to go right just like a go-kart and right pedal is your accelerator and you know push it forward to go left in the air it's all hand movement that we've got just like a hang glider you've got the control bar if you want to go up it's give it some more power with your foot and push forward. If you want to go down, it's take the power off, pull forward, then take the power off, technically. Uh, you want to go left, you push the bar to right. You want to go right, you push the bar to the left. We do actually have a hand throttle as well. But yeah, for my kind of microlight, that's basically it. With the three axis ones that look like little aeroplanes, they're just like bigger aeroplanes. You've got your rudder pedals and your joystick and throttle leader. It's one of those things that's simple to describe, but takes a little more practice to actually do it. And the hand glider bit, is that attached to the main microlight body? Because it seems like a lot of arm strength to be able to, to <laughs> hold up an entire microlight with your two arms. <laughs> yeah, we've got one bolt that the trike part is suspended off the wing. But the bolt has got a braking strain of about 10 tons, I think, so they don't break. Okay, wonderful. How easy it is to steer in the air. I'm fine. I'm five foot three, size 10. And my little microlight is absolutely fine. Some of the heavier ones take a bit more strength. The older, lighter ones, you can steer with fingertips. Now, it's quite an interesting pastime to have. And I wondered if you could describe how you first got into it. You can buy a, a microlight flight experience just like you can buy a balloon experience or a racing car experience or something. And I decided for reasons best known to myself, because I'm afraid of heights, that I wanted a 45-minute microlight flying experience for my birthday. The idea was I would go to the airfield, have my 45 minutes, say thank you, and never, ever look at a microlight ever again. <laughs> it kind of didn't work out that way. It's one of those where you just think, it's terrifying, but I can't not do this again. So it was a way of getting over your fear of heights then, and it completely embraced it. <laughs> yeah, I'm still afraid of heights. 
COVID's been bad for me because we've been grounded a lot. And every time I'm grounded for a period, the fear of being up there in something that's basically a shopping cart comes back. (laughs) And I have to get used to it all over again. I wanted to ask how the pandemic had affected it. I mean, have you been able to get out that much or is it something that, kind of, I mean, it's out in the open, so I would, I would have thought it'd be fairly unaffected. Well, unfortunately not. We are leisure industry, so we were completely grounded for a lot of it, even the instructors. My airfield, uh, we've got a flying school as well. And we all had to completely stop flying. Towards the end of the lockdowns, yeah, the instructors were allowed to fly first to get their currency back. Then we were all allowed to fly solo for a couple of weeks. And only then were we allowed to take passengers, even for us in the flex wings, which is, of course, open cockpit. And at 2,000 feet, with the wind going past you at 50 miles an hour, COVID isn't really much of a risk. I think possibly that they were either thinking, well, if we crash, we're going to end up going to a hospital, or alternatively, if nobody else can have fun, neither can we. It sounds exhilarating. And I wondered what about it appealed to you after that uh, kind of initial getting into it? I always wanted to be a pilot. Right from being a kid, you know, after you get past the, oh, I want to be a teacher because of all the pens phase, I wanted to be a pilot. And it was one of those dreams that just, you just forget about it because it's expensive. But once I had that flight, I just couldn't not do it again. And it's one of those where the fear is worth it. I guess it must be a bit like uh, going on a roller coaster or anything like that, you know, even going in like a single prop airplane. It's, well, it's more like the aeroplane, only smaller, because up there you don't have the sensation of speed. I and mean, if you think like when you go fly with Ryanair, you're up there, you know, hundreds of miles an hour, but it, it, it feels like you're floating slowly. It's a bit like that, only on a smaller scale. Yes, it's exhilarating, particularly landings and takeoffs. But also this time of year, you get yeah, the sunny summer evenings when all the thermic activity has gone out of the air and it's all flat and smooth and the air is like silk. Everything's tinted gold and it's just amazing. It's magical. That sounds so beautiful. Yeah. Or the freezing cold winter days. The air is also lovely and smooth and silky. You originally wanted to be a pilot. I mean, I think when I was a kid, I wanted to be a dinosaur. How did you end up going into pharmacy then? Well, being a pilot was one of those dreams that just kind of died. Because certainly when I was at school, if you wanted to be a commercial pilot, you needed money. Because you got to pay for most of your own training. And that's thousands and thousands of pounds, which my parents didn't have. And maybe there was a little bit of, well, girls just don't. But yeah, I uh, went through the UCAS handbook looking for things that were a little more possible. At least you're flying now and you seem to be doing it on a fairly regular basis now that the kind of uh, restrictions have been eased. And I wondered how long have you been going now and uh, kind of what, what level have you got to, if there are levels? I have been flying for four years. Two years of that was learning. So I've had my license for two years now. And, yeah, what with the pandemic and me being, you know, afraid of heights and afraid of turbulence and that sort of thing, I have not been the most adventurous pilot in the country. But I have visited some of the local airfields. And last night, three pilots and one passenger went out for curry 
the most expensive curry, particularly if you're flying a two-stroke engine, because uh, you know you're burning. Well, I'm even when flying solo, I'm burning ten liters an hour. But yeah, we all set off in the evening. Went to a local airfield that was having a fly-in with curry. Landed, had curry, had a chat with everyone else, and then flew back home again. Wow. I wanted to ask about the microlighting community. It must be quite tight-knit. I wonder if you could describe the sort of uh, vibe that happens there. To some extent, it's like a lot of pastimes. You've got the general population, which, you know, being pilots, it's heavily male-dominated. I think only 5 or 6% of pilots are female. That's right across the board. I'm the only woman at my airfield, barring partners and girlfriends who come as passengers or come to watch. We're a small, friendly airfield. We attract people who like spanners and mending things, that sort of thing. So that's pretty good for me because I'm getting better at knowing which bits of my engine do what. But at first it was like, yep, that's definitely an engine and it has tubes. (laughs) It is really friendly. And I don't think I've met a pilot yet who hasn't been really friendly and ready to discuss aviation and where they've been and where they'd like to go and um, yeah what happened that one time and oh did you hear about so and so who uh, had an engine failure ended up in a field (laughs) i should probably mention to the listener that as we're recording this podcast jen is actually in the airfield itself i can see the airfield building in the background and so you might hear the ambient noise of other flyers in the background i want to ask you you know when you're with other flyers do you kind of trade stories is that kind of that camaraderie there oh absolutely not only what we personally have done but you know mutual friends or any um particular stories that are going around the community at the moment, whether it's you know, a cautionary tale or funny or whatever. But yeah, it's, it's, it's like a lot of other pastime communities. What's the kind of best microlighting story that you've heard from others? And I'll add to that, what's the best story that you've had yourself? And that could be the, the curries. <laughs> well, the, curries was, the curry was my first ever fly-in. And I was, I was really nervous about it because, yeah, I've been to that airfield before, but never when there were going to be so many people there. And Neil, who'd been to the, one of their curry nights before, did not give the curry a good write-up. You know, I was left with the impression it was like, you know, fifth, you know, £12 landing fee if you want a curry and £15 if you don't. You know, I worried all the way there that I was going to screw up the landing and annoy people. Then I worried about the curry, that it was going to be awful. And then, yeah, you know, I worried most of the way home. Uh, but in the event, the curry was entirely acceptable and I didn't screw anything up and landed <laughs> perfectly. A few years ago, one of the, in, the instructors on a lesson had an engine failure. Our little aeroplanes, if you have an engine failure, which the two strokes are slightly more prone to, we're small enough that we just land in a friendly looking field. And this instructor and the student, they landed perfectly well in this farmer's field. The only problem was it was some sort of pampas grass type thing. It was 12 feet tall. Oh no. <laughs> it was, it, it's, yeah, they, they managed to get out of the field, but the problem was the grass sort of just closed over the aircraft. They couldn't, yeah, they couldn't find it again. <laughs> so um, somebody else had to go over and, and fly around in circles and sort of direct people to find this aircraft in the field from the air <laughs> before they could get it back out again. Oh, I, I thought for a second that the farmer might be uh, richer to the tune of one micro like that day. <laughs> Oh, no, 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 no. We're very, very keen on finishing the day with the same number of aircraft as we started it. Okay. 
Uh, now you mentioned it's it's very male dominated. Is is there? Um, would you like to see more women get involved in in the sports? Oh yeah, because it's amazing. It's exhilarating, fun, satisfying, and you don't have to be one of these kind of people who were like born with a spanner in your hand. Yeah, being male dominated, it's a very male sort of social dynamic. But I have not encountered any sexism. I get the woman jokes, but then Dave, the instructor who's bald, gets the hair jokes and rabbit jokes. Other instructor gets the short jokes. So, you know, it's friendly and it's nice. Darling Moore, where I I went for curry, one of their instructors is female and she does a lot of the maintenance as well. So, you know, come on in. The water's lovely. Well, I was going to ask for for people who are interested at uh, looking to get into microlighting or they just want to try it out, how accessible is it? And um, kind of what's the the upfront costs of it? Do do you have to have your own microlight or can you rent one, that sort of thing? It's legal to rent microlights. That's new in the last few years. But most people don't. Most people have their own or part of one. The flexies like mine, mine's a Pegasus Quantum, 20 years old, two-stroke engine. I own the left-hand half. My dad owns the right-hand half. He's still learning. So between us, we paid £5,000 for that. Obviously, like cars, ours is like the Toyota Corolla of microlighting. It's not, it's not sexy. It's not fancy. But it does the job and it will do anything we want it to do. But you can get faster and you can get shinier and more expensive. On the fixed wing side of things, the ones that look like little aeroplanes, you can still get some of the older models for £5,000. And if you like bimbling around nice and slow, then that's fine. Or if you want something more expensive, yep, you definitely can. Lessons vary, but probably about £110 an hour plus. The minimum time to get a license is 25 hours, but most people take longer than that unless they're like 17 or extraordinarily gifted. I think the average is around 50 hours. Okay, so it's a real real commitment. It is. I did the maths for how much per hour it costs. Once you've got beyond learning and and you've got to pay an instructor and all that sort of thing, to just fly your own microlight, it's not a cheap hobby, but it's affordable. And I guess the payoff as well is really good. Yeah. I mean, it costs probably about £35 an hour because you've got to have insurance and you've got to do maintenance as well. If, you, if you're flying 50, about 50 hours a year, it'll probably cost you about £35 an hour. The fewer hours, the more, yeah, the more it costs per hour because you've still got to get insurance and so forth. Yeah, the fixed costs. And of course, you've got hangerage as well, because unless you're going to fold it up and take it home every night, then you've got to pay pay somebody for a space in their hangar it, it sounds a bit like um owning a car you know once you've got past the upfront costs it kind of drops right down and the more you use it the better it is exactly and sort of... it's a little bit more expensive than running a car particularly on a mile for mile basis but it is affordable for normal people yeah that's good um if someone were were to be kind of pitching up at the airfield for the first time and like me they'd never done micro lighting what can they expect what would be the kind of first thing from when they got there to getting off the ground most people go for a trial flight first so you rock up where i am probably you get tea and a biscuit 
a briefing on the aircraft, which bits are what, where you can put your hands, that sort of thing. Don't interfere with the controls. Definitely don't switch the engine off while it's still flying. You may well laugh, but another airfield, somebody did. Is that quite a regular occurrence with uh, newbies? No, because usually they're not dumb enough to try and switch the engine off while the aircraft's in flight. <laughs> but this guy obviously didn't have, um, you know, it's, it's sort of, oh, what does this do? Click. Silence. And since they were on finals to land at the time, the pilot didn't have much time to uh, sort that one out. Pilot and the passenger walked away, but unfortunately, it was not one of those landings where you could use the aeroplane again. Anyway, so uh, having established that you do not touch the switches, briefing over what we're going to do. If you're um, flying flex, then we suit you up in a flying suit, headset, helmet and gloves. Usually for your first flight in a flex wing, for the trial flights, you sit in the back, the passenger seat, and the pilot does the flying. For your first actual proper lesson, you sit in the front. Flex wings mostly have dual controls. So the foot pedals for ground steering have got two sets of pedals, one that, you know, one that's close enough to the back seat for the back seat person to, to reach, unless they've got really short legs. And we put instructor bars on the control frame. It's harder to steer from the back seat, but that's where the instructor sits. So it's a bit like uh, when you're learning to drive and you have the double pedals so they can brake if you start accelerating into a roundabout or something like that. Well, yeah, exactly. And you, and you start by learning to fly straight and level, which isn't as easy as it looks. I can only imagine. Yeah, <laughs> because you, you're learning to control the throttle with your foot. And, you know, in a car, you just go faster. In an aircraft, you go up and down. And you've also got your uh, control frame. So if you're not doing that right, you'll go faster or slower. And, of course, when you're in a car, you know, it, it, it stays on the road. So you've only got to worry about, you know, forwards and not driving off the road. Up in the air, you've also got up and down to worry about. Yeah. Obviously, there are different microlites with uh, different uh, fuel consumption and stuff like that. But in your microlite, roughly how far could you go if you wanted to? I'm just thinking, you know, whether or not you could just pop over to France for the day or something like that. Or would they mind? <laughs> we do. Uh, well, I personally have not crossed the channel, but it is something I would like to do. And microlites do do that. When it comes to how far you can go, it depends. Are we saying how far on one tank of petrol or how far at all? Because if you're talking how far at all, uh, in the 1990s, Brian Milton flew a um, fixed wing with a two-stroke engine from London to Sydney. And then he went all the way around the world in a, um, an aircraft like mine, only his had a four-stroke engine. So it's somewhat slower than going by Ryanair, but... A lot more fun. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you, you, the world is, world is your oyster. On one tank of petrol, it depends on a lot of things. If I'm going solo because I'm little, and if I'm not doing anything terribly energetic or exciting, I'll burn 10 litres an hour. And my petrol tank is 47 litres, so I wouldn't want to go any more than four hours. And by then, I definitely probably want to land and go to the loo or something because there is no in-flight facilities. And I'm cruising at about 50 miles an hour. So in utterly calm weather, I could get maximum 
200 miles. If I've got the wind behind me, obviously it'll be further. And if I'm in a headwind, you know, too much of a headwind, you can spend four hours flying into a headwind and then walk home in 20 minutes if you're particularly unlucky. (laughs) But if it's that much of a headwind, you probably wouldn't be flying. (laughs) Yeah. But if you wanted to, you could go for like, I don't know, micro light holiday. Absolutely. And in fact, if it wasn't for COVID, that's what I would already have done because we had all the tickets and everything booked for two weeks flying in France. Oh, wow. I I had actually managed to get two days flying in the Alps. It was supposed to be a week except COVID. So I basically fled France just before it snapped shut. Flying in the Alps, that must be quite difficult because obviously there's not a lot of flat land. So if you have to... Uh, well land normally or even do an emergency landing well you need a lot of mouse for it (laughs) well there's the valleys with the flat floors i was flying out of gap tallard which is a big air sports center and flying with an instructor in the back the purpose being to learn to fly in the mountains and you stay or at least you know if you're a sensible pilot who's not trying to do anything too risky and exciting you stay where you can glide down to somewhere where you can land and still use the aeroplane again. But it's pretty amazing. And it's not really so much where can you land. It's also as well what the air is doing because air flows like water. So if you've got all these big lumps of rock, it can be doing some pretty funny things. How you you get lift where the air comes and goes up the mountainside, it will lift the aircraft up with it. So you get lift. If the air's coming over the top of the mountains from the other way, it kind of tumbles as it comes across. So you get rotor and that can really throw you around and it can throw you into the ground or into the side of a mountain if you're not careful. Wow. Now, obviously, you're a pharmacist by day, microlighter, whenever else. I've almost said by night. We're not allowed to fly at night. So we're pharmacist by day, microlighter by the rest of the day. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, it seems very different to pharmacy as a profession. And I wondered whether that was an attraction to the sport or whether you found that there are some skills that you've developed through microlighting which have cropped up at work? In some ways, it's more the other way around. Oh, okay. Pharmacy, you've got to be pretty detail-oriented. You've got to be happy to follow procedures and not skip bits. And you've got to have a good respect for the rules. And aviation is the same. We might be little and we might be slow and we might be cheap, relatively speaking, but we're still aviation and you can still die if you screw it up. Of course, in pharmacy, it's usually somebody else that dies if you screw it up. But, you know, the principle is the same. So we have our checklists. And, you know, when you're rigging the aircraft, you go through the checklist to make sure everything's okay. Because it's really bad if you're up there and you suddenly realize that actually you've left the wing pockets unzipped and you haven't fastened your trike to your wing properly and all that sort of thing. And then there's the record keeping. We are legally obliged to keep a logbook for oneself, the pilot, and for the aircraft, which is basically a CD register. So in the past couple of years when you've been microlighting, do you feel like your kind of workplace practice has actually improved because of it? Well, I'm medicines information, so I haven't actually seen a CD register in years, but there is a certain amount of crossover, I think. Whether it's improved my practice as a pharmacist, I don't know, but I think being a pharmacist has makes me a, a safer pilot. And, it, and it's definitely something which helps you uh, decompress after a long day. Yeah, I mean, you don't fly when 
you're when you're not in the right headspace for it because that's when accidents happen if you're in a hurry you will miss stuff if you're mostly thinking about the crappy day you've just had then you're probably going to make mistakes but come to the airfield relax have a cup of coffee de-stress a bit then go flying okay. and so for any for any other pharmacists listening to this who kind of are teeter on the edge of trying it out, what would you say to them? Do it. Definitely do it. Because it's not like we kidnap people and tie them down. If you don't like it, then you are allowed to leave. But if you <laughs> do like it, then just think what you'd been missing if you don't try it. And being afraid of heights is not necessarily a barrier. I mean, I'm terrified of heights. Two steps up a ladder and that's it for me. But you just have to keep doing it until you can keep the fear down to a dull roar. And it's worth it. Yeah. And I guess the, the fear always feeds the exhilaration. To be honest, I don't think I found that. I found the fear feeds mostly the fear and the terror and the worry. But it's so worth it. Well, I want to say a massive thank you to Jennifer Smith for joining me on the Pharmacist After Hours podcast. It's been amazing to talk to her and get to know all about microlighting. I certainly, if I'm ever near an airfield and see some microlighters, I'm going to stop in and see if I can have a go. I want to say a big thank you for listening. Next week, we'll be joined by Anna Robinson, a specialist clinical pharmacist and British dressage competitor. In the meantime, if you'd like to hear more, visit the CND website at chemistandruggist.co.uk.